Hey folks, thanks for checking out the 21 Gun Podcast, brought to you by Irreverent Warriors. I am your host, as always, Kevin Sullivan. Tonight's guest is Mike Ritland. He served 12 years as a Navy SEAL and served in Operation Iraqi Freedom and numerous special operations missions during his career. He later served as a Navy Special Warfare multi-purpose canine trainer for the West Coast SEAL teams. All this experience prompted Mike to write three New York Times bestselling books, Trident Canine Warriors, Navy Seal Dogs, and Team Dog. He has also been featured in numerous publications such as Town & Country, Police Canine Magazine, Canine Cop Magazine, and The Washington Post, The Huffington Post, New York Post, Men's Journal, and a lot more. Mike is an accomplished author, speaker, and been interviewed by dozens of media affiliates, including ABC, CBS, 60 Minutes, CBS 60 Minutes Overtime, CBS This Morning, C-SPAN, C-SPAN. Too. Book TV, Fox News. <gasps> you get the idea. This guy knows his shit when it comes to canines. Um, I picked his brain. I love dogs. Everyone loves dogs. Um, and this guy has a special relationship with dogs, how he trains them. Um, he's just a wealth of knowledge. So I picked his brain about that. Plus, he's a SEAL. And we know that these tier one guys are kind of a, a different breed of human. So they're fun to um, to talk to and pick their brains. I don't have any irreverent warrior announcements. I mean, we have the leadership conference coming up in, I think it's two weeks. So I'll see a bunch of you guys there. And then following that, actually, I don't know how it works. Either before that or or following that, we're going to have the list of 2020 um, hikes coming up. So when that comes out, obviously, we'll start plugging which hike is going to come up next. Uh, I'll be over on the Drinking Bros probably in the next few weeks. I'm I'm making that up. It should be in in February. Um, and we'll be announcing a lot of the schedules over there too. So, um, oh yeah. And a special thanks to the drinking bros. They've been helping me out as far as technical stuff goes, uh, for 2020, we're going to try to build a studio for 21 gun, try to get more video. If you, (laughs) if you watched the Christmas video episode, I'm sorry, the Christmas 21 gun episode, uh, it was a train wreck, but you know, that's what we do. It's just me over here and trial and error, try to come up with some cool ways to reach out to you guys. So hopefully in 2020, we'll, make up all those technical uh, glitches that we've been dealing with. Um, but I mean, we got the podcast thing down, so you'll have this anyways, every two weeks. Um, would like to push it up to once a week, but we'll see. I'm not going to make any promises right now, but that's going to be the goal for this year. A lot of cool stuff coming up. Uh, that's about it. Without further ado, here's Mike Ritland. <laughs> So I'm, uh, I'm chomping at the bit to talk about dogs, but in true 21-gun fashion, we're going to start at the beginning. Yep. I ask every SEAL this uh, because it fascinates me. <laughs> yep. where, where did your, where did the seed for, for service, where did the seed for joining the Navy, where was that planted for you? Uh, for me, it was, it was a combination of both of my grandfathers. My mom's dad was in, uh, in the Navy in World War II. My dad's dad was in the army in World War II, and uh, you know neither one of them talked a whole lot about it. The little bit that they did, I just uh, I kind of always had a bug to a certain extent, and, and was inspired and very patriotic uh, as a kid. I mean, you know, today you, you see some kids are just fucking more patriotic than others or whatever, and, and I was kind of that kid. As I got into high school and got a little more active and got into martial arts, and uh, my best friend at the time and I. Uh, you know, we'd go camping and, and hiking a lot, and, and we're just kind of into that. We'd go to a Army-Navy surplus store and buy MREs, and 
Rambo knives and crap like that and, uh, you know, just get into trouble and, and make booby traps and, and whatever. And so um, it, it started with the grand, grandfathers and then just kind of spawned into that. Um, why I picked the Navy over any other soft force was just uh, I, I grew up swimming competitively uh, from the time I was about five. I was comfortable in the water and, and uh, it just seemed to kind of uh, play to my strong suit by uh, by joining the the aquatic uh, soft force. So that's uh, that's what I did. Was that always your intention? You were going to go special warfare, or was this like yeah? Okay. Yeah. No, I, I didn't. Yeah. I mean, from the time I was about a, I was a sophomore when I first I read a uh, Popular Mechanics article uh, about uh, the SEAL teams, and they had a, a big spread on uh, you know them, their training, their missions, weapons, all that kind of stuff, and. I knew I wanted to do something like that. And when I saw that and it was, you know, Navy and water or whatever, that was kind of the, the last light switch, if you will, that, uh, that flipped on. And, and from that day forward, I was pretty, pretty hyper-focused on joining the Navy for that. So I, I didn't really have a, a plan B. What year was this? Uh, nine, 96 is when I graduated and, and joined. It was, uh, 93 when I, uh, when I read the article. Okay. Okay. So we're, uh, we're close to the same age. So we grew up with, um, I guess the, the closest thing we knew of battle was either our, our grandparents or our parents in their Vietnam stories or watching Saddam and, uh, Bush go at it on, on CNN, the first televised war. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, you know, I remember why I was in seventh grade when the, uh, first Gulf War kicked off, and uh, I remember very, very distinctly. I was scared shitless. Um, like I, I was afraid that I was going to get drafted. I, you know, I was, I was t- like totally chicken shitting out as a seventh grader. Like I don't want to have to go to war. I, you know, a few years later, after puberty hit, and I, and uh, apparently my sack descended. <laughs> uh, you know, not only was I not scared of it, I, I craved and, and wanted to go into it. So, if you have a seventh grade son that uh, doesn't want to fight. Uh, have no fear. He may turn into a total prick and want nothing but that. <laughs> I remember the the first time I set foot in Baghdad. Iraq was was you know hell on earth. That's what we knew from news. And when I actually stood there, it it, it was a surreal experience. I couldn't believe that I was in this place. That as a kid, it was you know it was whatever the news or, or our parents or the rumors were going around. How about yourself? Agreed. I mean, I you know there were parts of it um, when we were up in Tikrit. Uh, or on our way into Tikrit to take down Saddam's palace. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember there were, there was a, a neighborhood not far from his palace that uh, I think you know was a bunch of family members or uh, you know people within his regime or whatever. But it was it was one of the nicest neighborhoods I'd ever seen. And there were different pockets of the country that I was like, fuck, you know, this would be a place to vacation <laughs> under different circumstances. Uh, or a place I, w- I would like living in or, or whatever. And then, you know, obviously on the polar opposite contrast, you've got places uh, or, you know, par- parts of that country that are as, as bad as anywhere on the planet, you know. So for sure, there's there's a strange dichotomy of, of social contrast uh, in that country that surprised me for sure. I was expecting, uh, you know, it to be just a, a total shithole everywhere. So... I think subconsciously, you know, realized and remembered that we'd had them under sanctions for, you know, uh, well over a decade right. and squeezing them pretty hard. So, uh, you know, they, they still managed to make do, obviously. And so it was, it was pretty surreal to be in, in that, that climate and see all that stuff for sure. Uh, you know, we, you know, we were, we were at the, the palace most of the time. We, okay. 
Yeah. Once we took it down, we uh, staged operations out of there, and so we would shoot out into town from there. But uh, but it was, you know, always at night and uh, and usually doing like sniper Overwatch stuff and and things like that. So we didn't didn't really get to experience much of Tecrete other than th- than that. But okay, um, we jumped ahead a little bit because I wanted to ask you. Uh, about your training. I had Travis Kennedy, who's a, a SEAL uh, on, I don't know, I guess it was a couple months ago. And he said something that struck me. He said that they don't train SEALs, they discover SEALs. And I was like, wow, that's pretty, it's pretty fascinating to think about that. Yeah. I, you know, I would, I would say, I agree. I think it's a, a, a profound statement for sure. What, what I would add to that is that at least in my experience, I guess, is that for sure there's an uncovering there, but there's also a, uh, a grooming process that takes place, um, you know, that, that is uh, a part of that, you know, SEAL culture that uh, that's it's necessary it is really self-confidence, you know, as, as lame as that may sound. Um, not that I didn't have it going into it, but there's a, a paradigm, a mental paradigm shift that, that occurs uh, when you make it through Hell Week for most people. Absolutely for me. And, and I would say that's most people's experiences that, you know, when you're there, you're wearing a white T-shirt underneath your uh, your BDUs. Uh, we were wearing greens at the time. They wear camis now. But so you've got this white T-shirt on. And, and so when you uh, successfully secure, you know, through Hell Week, they hand you a brown T-shirt that you now wear. And as, as simple as that may sound, you know, getting able to put that brown T-shirt on for the first time is a huge fucking deal. Um, and, it, and it changes you. Uh, in in pretty much every way possible, and that you know the the level of confidence, you know self confidence, and and uh, just kind of attitude that you that you now possess because you've proven to yourself and your family and and the instructors and your teammates uh, that that you have the ability to do that is uh, is really hard to put into words. Um, you spend the whole time, you know, from the day you get there until you put it on there, like you you walk around and you see you know, these other guys running around with the brown t-shirts on and like, you know, you, you idolize them, you, you want to emulate them so bad. And, 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 you know, once you have that brown t-shirt on, it's like you, you walk around with just a total different air about you. Um, and, and so for me, you know, again, it wasn't that I didn't have confidence going in, but, but, you know, once I completed that and then ultimately graduated, I I proved to myself that, you know, in, in thinking of, you know, holy shit, we started with, you know, 206 guys, you know, 17 original guys graduated. Uh, and I'm one of them, you know, my, my 19 year old from bumfuck Iowa, you know, naive deer in the headlights kid, uh, you know, managed to make it through here. And it, uh, and it just, it completely, um, you know, changed and transformed my entire life as it relates to my uh, my self-confidence and then just, you know, kind of my understanding of what my, my mental fortitude is. When, when you get that trident, uh, is that after buds or is after the entire, uh, um, it's that, well, so it's different now than it was, uh, when I went through, uh, even when I went, so when I went through, you graduated buds, you went to Fort Benning jump school, and then you went through uh, STT at the time. That's what it was called, SEAL tactical training. Mm-hmm. That's about three and a half months. And then once you finish that, then you go to the to your SEAL team, and then you're there for six months on a probationary period. And during then, uh, you're going all to all different departments and 
uh, you know, studying all the different, uh, you know, capabilities of, of diving of, of, you know, the, or, uh, the armory of, uh, you know, the, what they call first Lieutenant, which is where all the boats and motors and shit are in intelligence, all these different departments and kind of getting up to speed on how they operate and, and what you need to do. And you've got this checkoff sheet that you've got to, uh, satisfactorily complete. And then at the end of that six month period, you go, uh, in front of a chief's board, uh, so all E7, E8, E9s, uh, and you stand there and get grilled for a couple hours, and they can ask you anything. You know, they, they ask you a lot of technical questions about capabilities and, uh, you know, whether it's weapons or motors or parachutes or cameras or, you know, tactics, I mean, you name it. Uh, but then they also ask you, you know, moral questions. They ask you character questions. They ask you hypothetical scenarios, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. And then at the end of it, they kind of circle up and they say, you know, yay or nay, do we want this guy to, to pass and give him a trident or not? And so, you know, you spend a long time getting getting up until that point. So getting the trident uh, is obviously an enormous deal. Uh, you know, it's it's getting the brown T-shirt times about a thousand. But yeah. um, now uh, you go through buds and you actually get your trident at the end of, of SQT. It's called SEAL qualification training. So go through bud six and a half months, then you, uh, you do jump school, uh, kind of in house. Uh, and then you go through, through SQT for another three months and change. And then, uh, if you graduate from there, then they just give it to you right there and you go to a team. I, uh, I'm not a big fan of that. And it's not just because, well, it's not how we did it. I just, I think there's a little bit of attitude, uh, adjustment that's missing by not having it, uh, you know, by showing up at the team with your trident. I just think that there's a, a piece missing there where, you know, to show up and still have to earn earn that trident amongst all of your teammates at the SEAL team that you're actually going to be at. I just, I think it, from a checks and balances standpoint, I just think it's a, a better and more thorough process that uh, I wish that they still adhered to, but, but they don't, they don't give a fuck what I think. So, <laughs> well, there's a reason for tradition, you know, especially yeah. when you're, you're operating at that, that tier one level. I mean, yeah. uh, yeah, it makes sense. It would make sense. So there would be folks that could make it that far and say, spend six months in the teams and, and end up being, you know, a, yeah. a MP somewhere or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's rare. I mean, for guys to make it to that level, you know, you're usually, you usually have what it takes to, to go the whole way. But yeah, there, there were instances where, you know, guys graduate buds, jump school, STT, spend six months at a team and then they'd go fail their trident board or get in trouble or whatever and, and not get their trident. Ugh. And there was a guy that, uh, that I graduated buds with, uh, went through all of that, actually passed his chief's board. Um, and then they were going to award the trident. We took our chief's board on a Thursday and uh, they were going to, you know, for all of us that passed, we were going to get our tridents that Friday morning at quarters at, at the beginning of the day in front of the whole team. And that night he went out and, uh, you know, it was just a shitty scenario. Uh, somebody put something in, in a drink of his and he ended up getting arrested, like naked in somebody's backyard, like skinny dipping in their swimming pool, high out of his fucking mind. Uh, got got arrested and got shit canned and, and sent to the fleet. I and mean, that's as close as you can get to getting a trident without getting one. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, it's just a shitty deal. But, uh, you know, and there are other guys that just didn't pass, you know, and, and you know, they, they would go through that process. And the guys were like, you know, this guy just just doesn't have what it takes. And, and they didn't pass and they didn't make it. But Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, 
that rite of passage thing is is i mean i remember going to, to flight school and you I don't want to call it hazing, uh, but because I would never use the H word, but the, the, I would, yeah, <laughs> I would call it, hazing. you know, just the way that you had to carry yourself versus the guys that actually had wings. And you looked at him like, man, I want those. It just, it just yeah. made you work harder. It made you, um, yeah. you know, just take that extra step. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> what is the biggest stereotype that accompanies being a seal? Or I guess you could say a seal misconception, whatever. Uh, I, I would say that that uh, you know, so a lot of people think that we are uh, far deadlier in terms of like hand to hand and uh, shit like that than we are. Uh, not that any of them are slouches, but I, I think there's this misconception that you know everybody has a a black belt in jujitsu and <laughs> uh, you know is a, a fifth degree fucking badass at everything um you know and that's just not the case i mean we do spend time grappling and doing prisoner handling and hand-to-hand stuff and whatever but the thing that i think most people they don't realize until you explain it is that you know there's a finite amount of time uh in our day just like everybody else's and and what we need to be good at is shooting moving communicating assaulting a target you know with a group of other guys um, and that does not include, you know, grabbing somebody and, and putting them in a, in a fucking rear naked choke. If, if you're, you know, assaulting a target and you're at a point where you're going hands on with somebody, things are horribly wrong. Uh, yes, there are times where you've got to grab somebody that's unarmed and they're non-compliant. They don't speak English and, you know, you, you, you can't shoot them, but you know, that they're giving you a hard time or whatever. And, and that happens. But, um, you know, by comparison, again, just in the amount of time that you need to spend, refining your craft at that shooting and, and being able to, you know, imagine a scenario where you're, you're sweeping through a, a, a house or a building that you've never been in at night on night vision with flash crashes going off 15 of your, of your teammates. And you're, and you've got guys in that building that are armed that know every nook and cranny in that place that are shooting at you, trying to kill you. Like to be good at that and, and to go in that environment and be successful you need to practice the shit out of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, so if you're, you know, to be, you know, MMA, UFC level, you know, caliber, you know, that good at, at grappling and, and, you know, martial arts of some sort, like you've got to spend hours and hours, you know, most days of the week, you know, drilling all of that to be really good at it. You know, again, we spend time doing it, but uh, not to the level where I think most people, you know, expect our guys to, you know, have these crazy ninja skills with, uh, with hand and stuff. But, uh, it's because of Rambo, man. That's, yeah. or, you know, or equally, I think a lot of people expect you to be good at everything. Yeah. You know, and there's, there's plenty of things that I suck at, you know, so. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, its own unit, right? I mean, because you have medics, you have snipers, you have just like yeah. you would in a in a any I guess paramilitary organization. I mean, they're called the teams for a reason, and yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of things that you have to be good at. But you know, a car breaks down or whatever, I'm like, well, you're a seal, you can fix it. Like, I'm not fucking MacGyver. <laughs> you know, a pack of gum and some rubber bands and, and me <laughs> rebuild a diesel engine. Like I don't, you know, I don't know shit about them. Yeah, that's <laughs> funny. You know, but, uh, so <laughs> looking up your bio from 2011, to 2012, you were multi-purpose canine trainer. Um, what were you before that? What was your job on the teams or did you, did you do a few during that time? Uh, yeah. I mean, my primary job, uh, was the intelligence representative. Uh, I mean, I had collateral duties of, 
you know, certain things with weapon systems or, you know, helping with every department. But uh, my, uh, my primary responsibility was the Intel guy. So I, um, you know, was tasked with, you know, working and collaborating with other intelligence uh, agencies and groups, uh, you know, whether it was within the Navy or other, uh, other uh, branches or other units or what have you. Um, and basically bringing my, excuse me, my platoon up to speed on, on all of the intelligence. So anytime we were going anywhere, you know, I had to brief them if it was uh, a training trip, you know, similarly like, Hey, here, here are the threats. Here are, you know, what you need to worry about. Here's what you stay away from, whatever. And then obviously when we're in country doing, doing real world shit, then it was, you know, I would build target packages or, uh, you know, if we if we were building a target package as a platoon and, and going to assault a target, I would work with you know Air Force, Intel, Army, Intel, other government agencies, whatever, and and corroborate all the different uh, Intel uh, pieces to uh, kind of paint paint a picture of what we were going to be dealing with uh, on target or, or what have you. So that was my main uh, my main gig. So how did you find yourself uh, with the opportunity to go over to Dogs? Uh, so, I mean, I, I didn't go to dogs while I was on active duty. Oh, okay. Uh, officially. Um, I, as I was getting out, uh, is when the dog program on the West coast was really starting to ramp up. It had, it had been around, it was kind of in its inception the last couple of years that I was in. So, um, I, I went through a decoy course with some of their guys and, and, you know, trained with, a, with a few of them here and there or whatever. And I was right there, you know, where their unit was. Uh, as I was getting out, I was offered a, a handler position there, uh, but obviously declined and, and got out and started my own dog company. I, I had been, um, you know, training and, and working with dogs for a number of years prior to that. And, uh, you know, for me, it was it was a tough decision to uh, to decline the handler spot and, and get out. But, uh, you know, for me, I, I wanted to kind of get the most bang for my buck. Uh, and the best way for me to do that was, uh, you know, was to have my own company and train lots of dogs and, and other handlers and, and uh, you know, source dogs and, uh, you know, work with all different types of groups and stuff. So that's how I got started in that. And then um, I bid on the uh, training contract for the West Coast and uh, and got it. So, um, you know, that, that the time that, uh, that my company that I owned at the time uh, held that contract is, uh, is when I was out there, but poor part of that time. When you were, when you were growing up, uh, I assume you had dogs and stuff. I mean, your level of expertise, it seems to me to be not just something you stumbled into, but perhaps something that's been with you. Yeah, I, you know, I've always been interested in and fascinated by dogs, uh, you know, growing up with labs and, and bird dogs in Iowa. Um, you know, I, I was not, you know, super technical back then, uh, mostly just, a you know, a fan of, of the breed, uh, and, and just of dogs in general. And so, um, as I got older and, and kind of started to appreciate their, their skill set and capability on, on the training side, um, is when I started to get more into the, into the training part. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was you know, did the hunting dogs for a number of years, got into hog dogs for a little while and, and learned a lot about animal husbandry and breeding theory and mm -hmm. uh, veterinary skills and, and things of that nature. And then, uh, you know, it was actually in Iraq uh, in 03 when I, uh, when we were in that, that same area in Tikrit, there was a bomb dog in the, in the area that we were in that, that kind of sparked uh, or piqued my interest in 
uh, working dogs on the military and police side. And so from 03 to, uh, to late 08, early 09, when I got out, uh, you know, I just trained and learned everything I could and continued to build upon, uh, you know, what I already knew and, and was interested in and fascinated by. And, and then from there, uh, started my own company and, and, you know, obviously I've been doing that professionally now for over a decade, but, uh, that's, that's how it, how it kind of all kicked off. Your, your dogs are pretty fucking impressive. Uh, do you train anything other than the Malinois or where's that? I your... do. I, yeah, well, first off, I appreciate it. I mean, it's, it's for sure the dogs and not me. I, you know, if there's one thing I would say I'm good at is finding good dogs, uh, that, that make me look like a way better trainer than I am. <laughs> but, the, but the, um, you know, in terms of the, the military police, personal protection type work, for sure, that's overwhelmingly, um, you know, Malinois, Shepherds, Dutch Shepherds, the, on the civilian side, you know, the, the team dog dot pet or uh, the online training resource that I started a few years ago, that is, is all encompassing. I've got, you know, uh, thousands and thousands of subscribers that, that, you know, have every different kind of breed you can imagine. So, uh, and that was the whole goal behind it was to take, you know, all of the, the principles and, and, theories and uh, be able to apply them to your average everyday dog owner. And, and so, uh, you know, by proxy through, you know, training and, and working with all of these dog owners that have, you know, all different types of breeds, you know, the, the nice thing about dog training and dog psychology is that, uh, you know, getting from A to B kind of irrespective of what A and B are is really the same, same path and process. You know, it, it, it doesn't, uh, vary too greatly um, in how you get there. Uh, obviously, you know, bomb dogs that are being guided by a, a pointy laser uh, versus, you know, a skipper key that you're just trying to stop, you know, growling over food or whatever is, is a big difference in uh, in what you're applying, but how you apply it is, is really kind of all the same stuff. So, um, you know, my hands-on day-to-day stuff that I work with is is primarily shepherds and, and police or military working dogs, but um, but I consult with uh, and interact with all of my subscribers, you know, throughout the week, uh, day in day out, and, and help them with their problems with uh, with all breeds. So, uh, and I'm actually getting ready to do a a fucking reality show with uh, with that. Uh, where oh, I'll seriously? <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Major network uh, wants to have me, uh, go around and be a dick to people and, and help them, uh, uh, pull their head out of their ass with their dog. So, uh, you'd be, be seeing that here sooner than I, later, which I can imagine how they're doing that. Uh, almost like the, the, I don't know, what was that? The nanny where she comes in and she's just a hard ass. You're like, the, yeah. they have it marketed like you're the seal that's going to come in. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So good for you, man. That's, that's, yeah. that's pretty cool. Cause I think, I mean, I, and I see this a lot. People go into, they see a dog and they 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 think it's cool, right? It's cool to have a Malinois. It's cool to have a, a 90 pound uh, pit bull or something like that. And then yeah. the pit bull ends up running the house. <laughs> yeah. Or And it's like, man, you, just like anything else, I mean, you got to know how to take care of it. Breeds are... Uh, are very a very generic starting point. You know, a lot of mm-hmm. times people get get too wrapped around the axle on this breed is this and this breed is that and, and what have you. And, and while yes, breeds are are a breed for a reason. Um, you know, there are a lot of examples of of atypical breed types out there that uh, that you know really 
um, you know, kind of fly in the face of, you know, the the adage of it's all in how you raise them is bullshit. Also, though, while breed is not, you know, keyholing yourself into uh, a certain problem or a lack of problems, um, just training them a certain way uh, isn't either. You know, people talk about nature versus nurture, and it's not an either or, it's both. Uh, you know, genetics are the fixed um, component that that is not variable, right? It, it's fixed and it's there and there's nothing you can do to change genetics. That's where training comes in and in, in that you can do a lot, uh, you know, to either augment genetics or to... Um, you know, stifle the expression of, of those genes. But, you know, to say that it's, it's just a breed or that it's just training, uh, you know, both of those statements are incomplete. So breed is a good starting point uh, and it gives you a, a good rule of thumb to kind of go off of and start with. Uh, but, you know, the individual is far more important than the breed. And then to, to dovetail onto that, how you train uh, and work with those genetics that you've been given uh, is the second half of that coin that, uh, you know, that is very, very important. So, uh, to me, it's just, you know, it, it irritates me a little bit when, you know, people say this breed is this, or, well, it's all in how you raise them or, or whatever. It's, it's not either, or it's both of them and they're both very important. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, so I want to see you tra- I think this would be great. Train a Yorkie to be a full up seal dog, jumping out of planes, yeah, well, chasing down bad guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, and so, you know, that's actually a very common question. You know, people will say, you know, hey, I've got a, you know, I don't need a full-blown SEAL dog. I, you know, I don't need a, an attack dog, but I would like, you know, my lab to to take care of business if somebody breaks into the house or whatever. And so, you know, the thing that, that's important for people to remember is that, you know, when it comes to genetics, it's, it's really no different than people in that, uh, you know, if the genetics aren't there, there's nothing I can do as a trainer to to make something that it's not no different than, you know, I, I can't take, you know, or, you know, take, uh, oh, I don't know, say, uh, you know, what's the fucking, what's the Alabama coach's name? Uh, University of Alabama football coach, whatever the hell his name is, I can't think of it. But, uh, you know, super successful football coach, like if you take, you know, a seven year old that just genetically just does not fucking have what it takes to be any kind of football player, let alone a division one five star caliber kid. Like you can put him with that coach for the rest of his childhood. And guess what? He's not going to be a starter for the University of Alabama because he just doesn't have what it takes. Um, You know, so when people are like, you know, hey, can you train my Chihuahua? No, Uh, (laughs) you know, I can put them through the same training, but that's not going to, that's not going to give them the ability to do that kind of stuff. No different than, you know, that five-year-old kid that, uh, you know, just genetically is not, not what we're looking for, you know? So if they have what it takes, then yeah, absolutely. And there are, uh, what I would call off breeds that, um, occasionally you come across that have, uh, you know, similar and adequate or appropriate, uh, skill sets and genetic tools to do that kind of work, but they're outliers. They're not, they're not the the standard. They're the exception. They're the anomaly, and, and you just don't come across it very often. And that is why, in police and military work, you see shepherds and malinois. It's not that, hey, this is my breed preference. Like I don't give a shit what the breed is. You know, I don't have a uh, a soft spot in my heart for malinois, and that's why I use them. I, I use them primarily is because my test is what it is, and and genetically they've been altered, in my opinion, the least. 
um, and, and the genetic tools that I need to be able to do what I need to do uh, are found more often in uh, well-bred, well-selected Malinois. I've seen plenty of Malinois that weren't worth a shit. Uh, you know, I've had plenty of people, you know, hey, this, this dog's dad was a police dog and his mom was an Air Force, whatever. And, well, unfortunately, they didn't pass that on to him and he's just not the right stuff. Uh, you know, so just because they're a Malinois does not mean they're going to be a great police or a guard dog or, or whatever. But Have you seen, there was a documentary, it's got to be a decade old or more, um, where they took a Russian, it was a Russian scientist up in Siberia. And it was, yeah, yeah, Yeah. fascinating. Yeah, you know, yeah, breed selection and, or genetic selection rather, uh, you know, is, is very, very powerful. Uh, And you can see, you know, the, you know, man's ability to manipulate canine genes pretty drastically in a very short period of time. Um, You know, and that's why you have the breeds that you have today. Um, And it's, you know, the traits that I look for uh, are, are elusive and hard to uh, perpetuate for two reasons. Number one is that um, just because, you know, getting something at a high level is, is rare and, and uh, you know, genetically um, not common, that in and of itself makes it difficult. But the fact is, is that the, most of the traits that we look for uh, go against the primary responsibility of, of any species, which is the survivability of itself. Um, you know, a dog, just like a person, just like, you know, seals, like the gentleman's comment about they're uncovered, not trained. Uh, similarly with people is that, you know, the, that lack of self-preservation and the, uh, you know, propensity to, to throw that out the window and, and throw your life on the line haphazardly is, is not a common trait in any animal, uh, in any species and in, in what have you. So, um, you know, even when you're breeding for that, you know, just in genetic selection, it, it, it does not lend itself to the uh, survivability of a, of a species for that to uh, occur frequently. And so even when you're breeding for it, it's hard to, uh, to recreate. So I may take, you know, a male and a female that both have that or that are both one percenter dogs that would, you know, take their life uh, before quitting or coming off of a bite or, or what have you. Uh, and out of eight puppies, you might get one or two of them that have that, you know, even if both parents do, it's just, it's, it's incredibly elusive. Uh, and so, you know, again, similarly with people is that, it, uh, you know, because of those two things, it makes it very, very hard to, uh, even, you know, in a, in a robust and selective and, and honest breeding program is still, uh, really hard to, uh, to come up with, uh, with puppies that have all those same traits. Yeah. Yeah, I think now that I think about it, I think her experiment was to discover where dogs came from. You know, how did we go from a, a gray wolf to a, like we said earlier, like a Yorkie or a Boston Terrier. And yeah. um, I think they speculate that it was the dogs that would brave the campfires for the hunter-gatherers, uh, or the wolves, I should say. And then they slowly uh, kind of did what the foxes did, which was, was interesting because they had the, it was a black fox, right? There's something yeah, like that. But, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of theories, uh, you know, as to how, how dogs came to be dogs. Um, you know, obviously there's no definitive, um, you know, no bullshit answer that, that you can prove. To me, it, it makes sense genetically and just, you know, knowing how dogs are, at least the experiences that I've had with them. 
in that, you know, yeah, it kind of lends itself to, uh, to common sense to think, you know, the dogs that were willing to, uh, to not be shy and, and were outgoing enough to come up and, and even take food or, or what have you, um, you know, are probably the ones that were brought into the fold. And then of those puppies, only the ones that interacted with kids and, you know, it just, you know, kind of cascades on itself. And, and now you've got dogs that, you know, have no prey drive that don't know how to hunt, that can't track, that don't, won't chase a ball that, you know, will play with a rabbit that, you know, that, uh, you know, have been bred out of their own ability to even survive. <laughs> uh, you know, how else would that happen other than, than doing that, you know? So it, uh, I think it makes sense, uh, impossible to prove, but I, I think it's a pretty logical theory. Yeah. Um, has there ever on earth, is there any other symbiotic relationship like humans and dogs? Yeah. Partners? I, well, yeah, I mean, I would say horses are, are oh, yeah. real similar that way. Um, you know, a lot of incredible bonds and, and working relationships that people have with horses. Uh, and there's, you know, uh, other quadrupeds, or, you know, goats and camels and uh, even elephants and, uh, you know, some people's relationships with, uh, with some marine mammals are, are pretty spectacular. But unquestionably i think dogs take the cake i'd say horses are probably a close second but you know dogs are are the only animal uh again outside of cats that I, you can't really compare those two that actually cohabitate with you you know even horses and elephants and sea mammals like you're not living with them uh you know so you know absolutely they they take the cake as far as that goes and uh you know the whole man's best friend adage i mean you know, to me, I think we're definitely getting the, the better end of the deal on that. Not that they have it bad, but, um, you know, the, the benefits that we get from dogs is, is I mean, it's remarkable. So, I mean, that's why I do what I do for a living. I, I like them better than most people. So. <laughs> uh, you know the term anthropomorphize, and that's when you take something and you humanize it. People do that a lot with their dogs, right? I don't want to do that because he's sad. I don't want to do this. Or look at this makes him happy. Does that does that hinder the potential of a dog? For sure it does. And if I had to pinpoint, um, you know, the most common mistake people make, it, it is that. Um, you know, people, I, I think, I don't think, people unquestionably uh, assume that dogs are far more complex emotionally than they are. Uh, and they think, you know, again, that, that they are just like people and they are not. Uh, absolutely, dogs are emotional creatures. They have very high emotional intelligence and they do possess uh, some of the same emotions that we do, but nowhere near to the same level of complexity and nowhere near to the same level of range in emotion that, that we possess. The other big thing that, that really kind of um, dovetails onto that is is the language piece. Uh, and if you think for just, just try to wrap your mind around the fact that dogs do not think in a language, right? And that's hard to imagine, you know? So just in how you look at the world in that you're, you're rationalizing it in a language, whereas a dog is, is using their mind like a fucking calculator, right? As a, everything is a simple association with them, A plus B equals C for everything. So they're not rationalizing they're not emotionalizing, if that's even a fucking word. Uh, you know, they're not using those two primary components that we use in how we interpret the world, how we figure it out, how we, uh, you know, associate things, all of that. And so, um, you know, when, when people make that mistake of 
thinking that the dog is thinking the way that we do, that's your problem. I mean, that's 99% of the problem. And to me, that is a, a form of anthropomorphism uh, in that, you know, you're, you're attaching a human capability to dogs that just purely doesn't exist. And so, um, you know, when we think like, well, why would the dog get into the trash? You know, like, like just stop thinking that way. Um, you know, they're making an association is that, you know, A equal, you know, A is us putting food into this container. B equals I bump my nose with it and smell it equals C. There's shit that I want to eat in there. Uh, that that's their their thought process with it. You know, it's A plus B equals C. It's not all of the other things that, that we're trying to to force uh, feed into into that dog's mind that just frankly doesn't exist. So, um, you know, if there's one thing that you take away from this, realize that dogs are making a simple association with everything and they're not thinking about it. There's just there's so many things that, you know, because you can't explain shit to a dog is that, you know, you have to teach them through, you know, reinforcement slash repetition and and patience, you know, or exposure to it. So, um, you know, body language, nonverbal communication, all of that plays a huge role. Uh, And then just, you know, figuring out how to kind of manipulate that environment so that the dog makes the right decision and then it gets gets rewarded. Um, And that's really the the backbone of, of, again, the the teamdog.pet online training that I do. Uh, you know, it's all these different videos of me kind of going through and, and showing how to, you know, set your house up and do, you know, training sessions and structure your, your environment and, and all of these things so that you can kind of, you know, essentially talk dog and, and figure out how to communicate properly to the dog so that they understand, you know, what the expectations are and, and they're not confused like most of them are. But Yeah. How about with um, military dog hand- or your police, whatever dog handlers? Uh, do they get trained to think on the level of, of a dog? I guess maybe what I'm asking is, do they separate themselves from a, a relationship more than tool and user of the tool? Is how is that built up? There's a couple things. Um, there, there, there's both. I mean, there are certainly departments or units I've worked with that have a very what I would consider old school compulsion-based training, yank and crank, punishment. The dog is a fucking tool. You pull him out when you need him. You don't get attached to him, you know, and, and kind of have that uh, that mentality towards it. On the other end of the spectrum, there's, you know, units, um, you know, that are the exact opposite of that, that, you know, the dog lives with them. You know, they're bonded with that dog as, as tight as they are any of the human beings, and, and in many cases more because they're they're living with that dog. You know, they're eating, breathing, sleeping, living 24-7, they're with that dog, and they become even even tighter with that dog than they do some of their human counterparts. Um, to answer your question, you know, is, do, are they taught that? Again, some are really good about teaching, you know, how important bond and relationship is and, and bolstering and building that up, and others are not so good about it. Uh, my opinion and, and the way that I train is is absolutely bond with that dog, become as tight with that dog as you can, um, because no different than, you know, any relationship that you have, whether it's with your kids, your spouse, a business partner, a teacher with their students, a coach with their athletes, um, a a boss with his employer, employees, you know, the the better relationship you have, the better everything else is going to be. And where communication is hard to begin with, because again, 
you can't communicate verbally to, to explain what, what's going on with a dog. You've got to do it through body language and reinforcement and repetition. So it's, it's in my opinion, that more imperative that you have a good relationship so that the dog will trust you and you can go do these things in dangerous areas where, you know, if the dog's a little unsure of something, you being there is going to help him through that. And, and uh, ultimately the capability uh, of you and the dog is going to be higher because of that. To your point of, you know, separating yourself so that you can feel better about putting the dog in harm's way. I disagree with that. Um, to me, it, it's it's actually real simple is that, you know, I love dogs. Um, I'm not going to say I love dogs more than you do. Uh, I love dogs as much as anybody does. Um, they are my, uh, my life's passion. Uh, I, I care very, very deeply about them and, and I enjoy nothing more uh, than bonding really tight with a good dog and operating at a high level and doing some pretty cool shit with him. Uh, having said that, if we are in an operational environment where I have to make a decision, either I send that dog in and he possibly gets killed, uh, or I send me or one of my buddies, comrades in arms in there and that happens to them, there is no decision. Uh, that's, that's a real fucking easy decision to make. Um, and it's going to be the dog every single time. Uh, it does not mean that I don't value their life. Uh, I care very, very deeply about them. And when we lose them, it hurts no less uh, than losing human uh, human counterparts. It, it is a real motherfucker, uh, you know, when, when they do. But it's still not a human being. Uh, and, and I am always going to put them in there first. That's, that's why we do what we do with them, uh, so that we're not having to... Uh, you know, hand a, a folded flag to uh, to a grieving mom or wife or uh, you know daughter or what have you. And so, um, the one thing that I will say about you know separating that as it relates to you know the dog is where the dog is concerned is that you know we we put them through the same training that we go through uh, so that they have the ability to do what they do. The good news about all of that is that because the dogs are small, fast, light, capable, super quiet, far better in terms of their hearing, their, their vision in certain capacities, uh, their nose, obviously, is that just because they are our dogs, that makes everything safer, including themselves. Uh, yes, we do lose dogs. It doesn't happen often. Um, and because they are so good and, and so capable, um, just them being what, excuse me, what they are, uh, gives them the ability to uh, force multiply and, and be a, a force protector, not just, excuse me, for uh, us, but also for themselves. So uh, kind of a lot to digest there, but, uh, you know, it's it's an all-encompassing answer to, to a multi-part question. But. Uh, that 60 minutes uh, interview you did, there was a Green Beret on there. And I think for the listeners, if you just put in Mike Ritland, the 60 minutes, look at the relationship that Green Beret, who's a double amputee, had with that dog. And it yeah. was, it, I mean, you, the, you could see it in the dog's eyes, you know, that, that bond that they had. It's, it's pretty yeah. incredible. What can dogs do for veterans that are having trouble returning? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And, you know, to me... Obviously, I'm an advocate for dog service, though, you know, having dogs in, you know, a multitude of different capacities, uh, you know, to assist human beings, you know, and to, and to me, like the, the service dog, um, you know, it is really multifaceted and it, it can really it can provide whatever you need, honestly, uh, I mean, within reason, obviously, like, 
you know, is the dog going to use an abacus and do long form math? No. Uh, you know, but, but emotionally, you know, if it's, and here's where I would say, you know, I, I would love to see, honestly, even a, a broader spectrum of service dogs. Um, and I'll get into that in a second, but, you know, as it relates to, to the scenario that you're talking about, yeah, like just having a dog that, you know, can hear and see and smell and is super tight with you. And even just a head flinch is going to notice somebody walking up behind you or, or, you know, just being there as, as somebody that can calm your nerves, no different than, you know, people that spin rosaries or fucking fidget spinners or, or whatever, like the, the science behind, you know, petting a dog and, and having that emotional connection, because it's unlike all of the other mechanisms that we use to, to twiddle and fuck with and whatever is that this is an emotional creature that you have, you know, an, an attachment to. And, and so no different than children or spouses or whatever is that it, it connects you to another creature, um, you know, that, that helps relax and uh, satiate an emotional need uh, that most people have. Uh, you know, a, a social connection is desired by most people, even the most introverted uh, of people out there. If you put them in, in the shoe in solitary confinement, you know, that they will lose their fucking mind uh, in, in not a long time, you know. And so by having that other, you know, another creature there that's not judging you, that's not, you know, has any ulterior motives and trying to steal money for you or bang your wife or <laughs> kidnap your kids or, or whatever is that is that there you can let your guard down with a dog uh, in a way that you really can't do with any fucking human being. You know, be, because of that, because there, there is an inherent um, innocence and naivete that exists in a dog that, that you can you can actually relax around. Um, and so, you know, depending on what you need, there are a lot of dogs that can fill that void. It doesn't just have to be, you know, assistance with standing or, you know, emotional support. I mean, there's a lot of different kind of avenues that can go down. But the other thing that, that a lot of veterans that struggle with PTS... Um, you know, have, have a hard time with is, is that, you know, feeling comfortable in a, in a crowded environment or being super paranoid, like a lot of us are, um, you know, and one of the things that, that I love about the dogs that I work with is that, you know, the, the capability from a protection standpoint, if you have a dog that, that has those genetic tools, uh, and that capability and training, and you have a bond and control over that dog, I, mean, I can tell you right now, like, I mean, I've got three dogs in my house that all three of them are, are trained in that capacity that, um, you know, they hear and smell shit way, way faster than I'm going to do it. Uh, and all of them will react. Uh, if I'm out in town with them, if I'm in a vehicle, you know, I can pull into, you know, a, a dark area at night traveling, you know, and be on my phone and be totally comfortable with it because I've got this 70 pound ass eater behind me that if anybody comes within 30 feet of the vehicle, he's going to let me know way before I would, even if my head was on a swivel. And so, you know, the peace of mind that having not just a dog, but a dog that's trained in that capacity, uh, I think is game changer, life changing for a lot of people that, that you don't see a lot of that out there. The, the problem is that they're a fucking liability. And, and, you know, if you get, you know, somebody that, that, doesn't fucking do it right, you know, and has this dog that's absolutely going to hand somebody their ass and you got, you know, somebody having a couple of drinks or, you know, Hey, fire up on this guy to show off or what, you know, like you, you've got to, you've got to be smart about 
not fucking it up for the rest of us and uh, and using that that capability for what it was designed for. But I, I would love to see, you know, a, a broader spectrum uh, approach towards providing dogs that, that have that capability for for people, uh, you know, that struggle with getting out there in, in that capacity. It just it needs to be done right. The dog needs to be trained uh, obviously properly. It, it needs to have the appropriate genetics and that training and turnover uh, process needs to be adequate so that the the person is not abusing that that privilege and it is it's a privilege um you know but you know i I would love to see that because there there really are so many um you know different applications that that service dogs can uh can fill as a role and there's so many dogs in shelters that, that frankly a lot of them can fill these roles not all of them you know some dogs are nerve bags and and genetically super super weak and and thin uh, in terms of their environmental uh, nerve capacities and all that and and just have no business being in in that environment but a lot of them do and and can and and i would like to see more of that so it's almost like they they take the place of your your i mean in in the military work in teams right whether it's a rifle team whether it's a seal team whether it's an air crew uh and you you were able to do your job whatever your job was in that team because you knew the next person was doing theirs and you yeah you you can count yeah yeah you go into shitty areas and you you can you can focus on your job because you know that someone's watching your back so yeah that that really fascinates me It, it it first dawned on me when i was up at fenway park so uh to people who don't understand, it's like, okay, let's take the kids to Fenway Park, right? So uh, someone who who hasn't lived any sort of uh, exciting life would say, oh, that'll be a great day. You know, maybe we'll stop here for lunch and then we'll go to the subway and then get in there. And me, nine months ahead That's of time, exhausting. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I got to get my family through a city <laughs> unarmed because it's Boston, get to yeah. a park. Get to... There was a guy sitting up a, uh, in front of me about, I don't know, three or four rows and uh he had a a shepherd with him and that's the first time i it dawned on me i was like this dog actually was looking back at us Uh, and i was like man that guy's relaxing he's in the moment he's present because he's got that that uh you know 80 pound shepherd literally covering his back so yeah they they can for sure change people's lives The, the tough part is um you know, getting the right dog, having it be properly trained, properly turned over, you know, having credible organizations that, you know, that are that are doing that the right way and not trying to turn a quick buck or, you know, milk VA benefits or, or whatever. And I'm not saying that a lot of them do, but there are some out there. There's a ton of really good organizations, too. And I just I would like to see a lot more federal funding, uh, yeah. frankly, um, you know, and that's you know the the nonprofit that I started the Warrior Dog Foundation, a totally different front, but similarly, like you know, to me, Congress needs to pull their head out of their ass and and appropriate way more funding for dogs across the board for veterans, whether it's service dogs, whether it's just retiring working dogs, like we do again with the Warrior Dog Foundation. You know, we don't have any federal funding. There's no federal grants, no money set aside, nothing earmarked. Every dime. Of, of the over 20 dogs that we have, and we've taken in over 150 dogs in the last nine years uh, that all would have been put to sleep if we had not taken them. And these are all dogs, you know, from all different units, I mean, special operations, military, you know, police departments, government agencies, you name it, uh, that, that, you know, we're, ha- we're having to, to solicit and ask private donors who have been overwhelmingly generous, um, you know, to, to help take care of these dogs. But, you know, that should be covered by 
the U.S. government, you know, both on Warrior Dog Foundation front and also for, for service dogs. I, I would love to see uh, a push for, uh, for you know, a lot more, um, you know, funding on, on uh, our government's part for that. No way, man. Psychotropic drugs. That's what it's all about. <laughs> Take your effects here, your Lexapro, your Ambien to sleep, your whatever to stay awake here. Uh, yeah, but that's that's a whole other discussion for another day. Um, man, we've been, we've already gone over an hour. I can't believe that. Um, cause I've got okay. about 400 other questions, but this just means that, uh, we got to link up again. Cause this podcast isn't going anywhere. Yeah, um, I'd be happy to, so. Where, where can folks people, I mean, you got a lot of different places, you got a lot of things going on. Where would you drive folks if they want to hear more about you more about, uh, yeah, maybe so, yeah, just Mike uh, you can get everything that I have going on there, but honestly, you know, if anybody out there that has a dog, teamdog.pet is is you know the reason that i started it is for you it's for your average everyday dog owner whether you have the relationship you think you should have or not it can always be better uh and it's you know it's very comprehensive i've gotten tons of great feedback i get in on the forums and i interact with people uh once or twice a week uh answer questions uh, we post videos we do contests it's a kind of a, a all-encompassing dog resource so go to teamdog.pet and sign up. It's 99 bucks for unlimited access for an entire year. Um, and it's, uh, it's helped a lot of people out, thousands of them. Um, MikeRitland.com, Tricoast.com, uh, Facebook, just type in my name, uh, Instagram, it's at MRitland, uh, Twitter, the same thing. Um, for anybody that wants to help out with Warrior Dog Foundation, I uh, humbly ask your support, and that's just WarriorDogFoundation.org. Like I said, we've got over 20 dogs right now uh, that, that need constant uh, care and attention and help. Um, and, and we run off of your guys' donations. For any active duty uh, or government workers, we are in the CFC campaign. Uh, we are a, a recognized charity for, for CFC. So uh, if you're in the contributing season, which we are until from now until January 11th, I think, uh, you know, we, we would love for, uh, for you guys to, to sign up and, uh, contribute through, uh, through that campaign as well. But awesome. Uh, that's, uh, that's pretty much everything. Yeah. We have a lot of active duties, uh, folks in our, in our group. So, um, yeah. Um, and, and the other thing too, is I, I just got back from a, a reverend warriors, uh, hike and I don't know how many of us were there 300 and I probably saw 50 service dogs. So it yeah. is getting out there. People are getting them. Um, yeah, that's awesome. and they seem to be helping. So, well, this thing wouldn't be anything without folks like you taking your time and, and, and chatting. So Mike, I, I, you know, appreciate, uh, you doing that for us. I, I uh, it's really, it's an honor and a pleasure. I, I appreciate you having me on platform to, to share my story so thank you awesome well thank you and you have a good night all right you both